Welcome to Asking for a Friend, a show where we discuss awkward, vulnerable, and practical life issues. My name is Patrick Cook, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Ethan Canning. Ethan, how are you doing today? I am wonderful. How are you? I'm feeling a little chubby. I'm going to hit the trails here uh, after we're done recording this, actually. Well, I hope you have a beautiful run, and as this is a body-affirming space, I love you (laughs) for who you are today, but I also hope the jog brings you some wonderful mental health and sunshine happiness. Thank you. That really means a lot, I think. Why are you going running? Uh, Training for... um well, training, surprise, surprise, a thing I've rarely, if ever, done um, for that race we've got in August. I'm trying mm. to actually put in some miles pre-race, which has not historically been my my mode of operation. I'm usually like a off-the-couch kind of masochist. Yeah, or one other thing that's unique about you that listeners should know is that when you do long runs you'd like to take 45 to 60 minute coffee breaks in between the long run. So you might run for seven miles and then do like a 60 minute espresso break and then finish your long run, which is um, an interesting strategy, highly confusing to me, but perhaps very successful for you. I'm a social guy. And sometimes I run into people that I know and sometimes I get a little snacky. I don't know. Sue me. Um, I'm showing up on race day with, uh, you know, potato guts and, pastry face <laughs> it'll be yeah we're doing the first annual prospector 50k in the Beartooth mountains in southern montana uh it's they only allow 100 people 100 masochists get to join it's going to yeah. be a beautiful race and i can't wait yeah i'm really excited for listeners if you've never been to the Beartooths, um watch out for moose but do go visit it's some of the most beautiful hiking running fishing scenery you're gonna find in montana outside of glacier i think it's it's a magical beautiful place so um don't tell too many of your friends but (laughs) but visit um okay ethan we are talking to a friend of yours uh today matt blakesley and we're talking to him about grief how did this come about so matt and i met in high school at Billings Senior High, we when my wife and I moved back to Billings in 2015, uh, we reconnected at a coffee shop, um, and then sadly through the last seven years, um, he lost his mom and his brother within the course of a year or two back to back, and I lost my mom, you lost your mom too, both within a year or two of each other. Um, which we've spent a bunch of time processing together. But so he approached right. me and said, Hey, you know, I've, I'm about to lose my mom. I think you've gone through this. Can we talk about it? And I, I felt wildly under, under equipped to um, talk about grief in that moment, but I just kind of shared my own personal experience and some things, a few things I've learned. Um, and he's done a really incredible job, I think, and been very vulnerable and vocal in his own process, processing grief and losing his mom and brother before during and after yeah Um, so i'm excited to dive into that in a way that i hope is helpful to listeners also sadly and tragically my wife kaylee lost her dad jim who's just an amazing person um two summers ago 
And so the, another topic I want to explore is, you know, as we have friends or family members, partners, spouses in our lives, what are some ways that we can support and be present for those around us as we approach? I mean, no, nobody wants to talk about grief. It's it's gross and sad and messy and scary, and nobody really teaches you how, how to do it. But unfortunately, it's a part of our lives. And as we get older, it, it becomes more of a more prevalent part of our lives. And so I would love to, you know, um, as, as part of our upcoming conversation, hopefully process some ways that we can support each other through a really difficult process, um, whether we whether we're grieving ourselves or supporting someone else. Yeah, that's huge. Um, all right, well let's let's dive into it. Okay, here we go. I love Matt because I think you know we're I I wrote we're builders together. Um, I think we love building community together, relationships. We've both worked um, together. Matt was the uh, pastor, is the pastor at um, CMYK Church and uh, built that community for a couple years. And I was able to help him there in kind of a finance nerd perspective, um, also on council. And then um, briefly helped Matt too with uh, working at Art House, which I'll let him talk about a little bit. Um, I'm thankful to be with you, Matt, today, and Pat. You guys are two of my biggest supporters in life, so I feel very loved in this moment. Uh, last thing on Matt, he has a son named Anders, who's my same same age as my son Anders. We've got double Anders. Uh, Matt is a talented, consistent runner, which I appreciate. <laughs> and jogger. Also Don't put that blossom. label on me. <laughs> you run. I've seen you. Yeah. Uh, and he's also a blossoming... English Premier League fan, yeah, and he's I'm in the process to. of selecting his first of his English Premier League team, and I'm forcing him to wait almost an entire season to pick, so he can properly complete his due diligence. Uh, so I'm excited to see how that selection process goes. I think we're in week three or four. So with that, Matt, <laughs> tell us if you give us a couple minutes on background life and and maybe how your Premier League selection process is going. Yeah. So, uh, thank you, Ethan, for the kind words. I would uh, just have to echo, uh, the first time running into you again, uh, in off the leaf, as it was known, uh, at the time, uh, there was this little part of me that walked away from that conversation saying, I want to be around that guy more. Um, so I'm really uh, out of all the things in my life that have left and right turned everywhere. I'm so happy that, that that at least is something that has stayed consistent. So thank you. Excited to be here. So yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Billings, Montana, never really left, um, have always been here and uh, really spent the bulk of my life on many levels involved in church, uh, whether that was a little kid volunteering in the nursery or growing up into getting a job on the maintenance team in high school to then uh, after high school, starting Bible school and um uh, kind of taking that path towards getting an internship and then on staff. And, you know, being a pastor was always the end-all, be-all goal uh, for my existence on planet Earth. And uh, a lot of that just revolved around the home that I grew, in, grew up in, the culture that I was around, and really trying to uh, emulate and do what I thought would be best, what was desired of my life and what would be best for my life. So, um, and really have, you know, no major complaints or issues with it. Uh, but that path and that journey, uh, set me to in 
2013, a step away from my job uh, at the church that I'd been employed at for 10 years for my wife and I to step out and to do two things in this city that we loved. We decided we want to stay in Billings, and if we're going to stay in Billings, uh, what did we want to do with our life? And so one of them was to start a a new kind of unique church community, and the other one was to try and bring uh, some different kind of art and culture to our city. So we started uh, Art House Cinema in downtown Billings, which is an independent micro cinema with some grand visions and hopes for the future. And then, as Ethan mentioned, we started that, that church community known as CMYK. Uh, to jump over a lot of details that we might be speaking about later, uh, just a lot of life happened uh, since 2013 and a lot of choices and decisions uh, that I was making personally and a lot of things that were happening uh, for my friends and particularly my family and some, uh, you know, to use a big word, trauma taking place in my life uh, when 2020 hit and COVID and everything shut down uh, really was an invitation for me to kind of step back from particularly the the job of uh, pastoral work or ministry and start to ask myself the question, one, am I healthy in doing what I'm doing? And two, do I actually want to do this? Because uh, again, I was just doing it because I felt like that was what I should be doing. So uh, that uh, invited me into basically a year of uh, really processing, questioning, having a lot of conversations with close friends and family. And at the end of that, in June 2021, uh, decided that I was uh, okay and the healthiest thing for me was going to be to hang up that uh, that pastoral ministry work and just focus on Art House. Um, and so... Uh, all that to say, here I am today, uh, employed by Art House, where we got a lot of great things going, uh, bringing a lot of film, art, and culture to our city, I hope and believe, and we've got lots of plans and visions for the future. So that's where I'm at and where I'm from. Yeah, and if if you're listening and you're in Billings, I think some of the most, I mean, as a community citizen of, of Billings, I think having Matt in Billings, building what he is, I mean, some of my of my top 10 favorite things in Billings, like three or four of them are things that Matt is working on or building. Um, I think like Charlie Brown Christmas is coming up at the art house, which is my favorite event the entire year. I just went to a ski movie at the Babcock. There's a huge sold out comedy show coming up. Um, I went to a jazz show set Sunday night with my friend Parker Brown to watch Eric Olson and some guys play just some beautiful, phenomenal things happening in Billings that are all being hosted through Matt's, uh, organization art house so check that out if you haven't it sounds like you went from one type of community building to to a different kind of community building did you have a background at all in um in film or theater or um production uh, no no i always it it comes off as a joke but it's a real thing i literally the first day i was out of my old uh job at the church i was employed at when i quit there to start art house I literally Googled, how do you start a movie theater? <laughs> and uh, there was zero good information that came uh, from that what, whatsoever. Uh, but that was the start of this journey. So it has been a lot of, I, I mean, as much as I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the people that will point at me and my wife and the work that we've done, at the end of the day, this truly has been a community effort. There's so many people, Ethan being one of them, that bring in their expertise and insight to help this thing become what it is. That's awesome. That's really uh, exciting and I think encouraging when when thinking about starting something totally from scratch. Like that seems daunting, but you you did it. Thank you. He did it. Okay, so we brought Matt on today um, 
to talk about grief. Um, th this is going to be, I think, uh, I, I'm excited and nervous, um, and you know, even emotional just thinking about it. But uh, the kind of goals of this is to dive into grief and just kind of create a safe, vulnerable, weird, messy space to talk about it. Grief and death and loss is something that has probably happened to all of us and is maybe happening or you're experiencing right now. And if not, it will happen um, in the future. So we wanted to kind of create a podcast or conversation on on that. And, and for um, all three of us actually have lost our moms in the last, you know, three to four to seven years. Um, so we all share that, unfortunately. And I, I've had conversations with both of you individually and I think we've been able to work together to process and give each other life through that. So yeah, so let's dive in. I think the, the three big topics that we're going to hit today that we'll run Matt through is the spiritual, mental, and physical effects of trauma and grief. So essentially death happens, which creates trauma. And from that trauma, you move into the grieving process. Um, after that, we'll talk about the grief journey and not just after or during, but even before and what that looks like and then we'll end with what is what does life look like afterwards you know not just a couple weeks or months but years and decades afterwards after you lose someone close yeah i think you know for me and um i i hope that anybody listening to this would understand i think all of our uh hearts or intentions behind this conversation there are experts in the world when it comes to talking about this topic and i am not one of them uh but i am somebody that is uh, more than willing to share my story and be honest about my experience and journey um but this is a a really really complex thing and i think the the challenge of something like grief is and trauma is it impacts and affects everybody different and the ripple effects look different for everybody. So for me, um, you know, was in the midst of uh, art house and doing that and CMYK and doing that and really loving life. And uh, my brother was diagnosed with a uh, brain tumor and was given uh, two years to live and almost two years to the date uh, from that diagnosis, he passed away. Um, and so, you know, that that was something I know a lot of people have lost brothers or siblings, um, and I'm not trying to uh, hyperbolize that my my relationship with my brother was more significant than yours. But um, part of this journey for me was realizing just how significant and traumatic that was because of who this man was and continues to be for my life. And even uh, the specifics of being a pastor and in ministry, a lot of that was following in his footsteps. He uh, was a pastor here in town. Uh, I play guitar and do music because he played guitar and did music. I, I Almost all of the things uh, that you could point at in my life that I do have some tie to me being the younger brother wanting to emulate and, and be like my older brother. So losing him and the, the, the journey around that was uh, really difficult. And then uh, not uh, quite a year later, my mom passed away. Uh, she had been diagnosed with uh, MS earlier on in my life when I was in middle school. And so it had been a long, uh, almost 20-year journey of <clears throat> watching her body deteriorate uh, and uh, that whole journey and process. And then, and so losing her was something that, um, you know, was something that we were not looking forward to by any means, uh, but the, just that long journey and then kind of waking up to uh, when she passed, um, 
not only the shock of now mom is gone, um, grandma Mary is gone for my kids and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, just, uh, I think the, you know, waking up to the last 20 years almost of that MS journey and kind of starting to grieve some of that, that I'd never, never truly grieved before. So, and I think at the, the end of the day for me, um, uh, this journey of loss and, and I would, I would throw a third one in there. Um, and a lot of it, uh, was, and just as traumatic, but in that same time frame, almost within that same year, uh, there was a loss of, uh, a faith community. Uh, I had made some choices from a theological standpoint for where I was at and, and where I wanted this, uh, CMYK church kind of community, uh, to reflect that was not, um, something that was, uh, reacted to well. And, uh, so I ended up losing, uh, my, uh, pastoral ordination through the denomination that I had grown up in and losing a lot of friends and, and relationships and kind of tension of family. So there was a trauma there as well and a grief and a loss there of, of, I, I was fully in control of that one, obviously, but making that decision so that those are kind of the three big things. When I look at my grief journey that I would point out. I love how you said that. I think our goal is not to be the experts on this, but just to be vulnerable and share our own stories in a way that's life-giving to a listener. And I also think, too, uh, my, my wife lost her dad last summer, and so in a way that we can also be supportive um, to friends, family members, spouses, and partners around us, too. So after all that happened, you had, it had a pretty profound uh, spiritual effect on you, and we had talked about you know, this, a Christian's uh, denial of reality, um, and through that process, can you kind of talk, talk us through yeah. that, what, what that process was like for you? Yeah. I think I, if I had to sum up all, all three of those things, what, what that was, what trauma is for me is an invitation into reality is the way that I, I would state that. And what I mean by that is I grew up in a home and grew up in an environment where the things happening around you, um, it, you've got to be careful to always hold up the narrative that you're told. This is how the world works. This is who God is. And this is how these two things are interacting. And so anytime you're experienced or anytime uh, something's happening uh, to you or through you, whatever it is that is uh, against that narrative, uh, then you have to you know, do some, you know, biblical uh, gymnastics, if you will, to try and make sense of it and be like, oh no, this is why this is happening. You know, so at, at a basic level, the idea of if you pray and go to church and tithe and do all the right things, you will be blessed, you know? And so then when these things are happening to you or you're seeing, you know, the, the outcome of some s- certain things, you're like, what, what's happening? And so you can do that gymnastics, uh, it's, you know, the phrase, the term I would use is fundamentalism, that this is the way the world works and you have a very rigid black and white view of how it needs to be. And so you're always working to cram what's taking place into that box. And for me, these, uh, traumatic experiences, um, were an invitation, I would say, because you can fully choose in that moment to lean back into that narrative and and lean into and this is where church community can be really powerful because you have community around you that's saying you know I, I know that you think that uh, this is what's happening but this is really ha- God is really blessing you God is really you know whatever it is and so you're 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 bringing that narrative to your experience compared to what I would say this invitation into reality like this sucks this this is hard and there's no uh, easy answer. There's no, I can point at this and say, this is why it's happening. It's just happening. And so I'm going to do my best to 
jump both feet into this this reality of how I'm feeling, of what I'm experiencing, of what I'm seeing, and talk about it openly and candidly and honestly, and not try to hold up all things work together for those, you know, whatever it is. And I'm not making light of the scriptures, but I am saying I felt that pressure uh, in those moments to just say like. Uh, d- deny, deny what's going on and just hold up this narrative. And so um, that for me is what trauma has been. And and that is, like you say, that's on a spiritual level, how I'm choosing to believe and see myself and this thing called God or the divine mystery in the world around me. That's on a on a mental level, like how I think about and process these kinds of things. And it's on a physical level, like inviting my body to either fully engage in and feel uh, and experience what's going on physically with me, or again, just pretend like it, you know, it, it's not as big as it is because da 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 whatever that narrative is. So that, that was the journey for me of I'm going to continue to if you will, poke the box of reality and say, look, I'm not going to just pretend that this isn't happening or this isn't hard or whatever it is. I'm going to, I'm going to lean into this. And even when my belief system doesn't line up with my experience in reality, I'm going to be willing to be honest about that, uh, that dissonance in that moment, rather than just pretend like, um, my reality isn't, isn't really reality that there's something else going on. I think I experienced this personally in the loss of my own mother, but I experienced it before that in the loss of, a pastoral figure in my life. And there was a narrative in our church that was very heavy on faith and very heavy on healing. And I don't think it was intentionally or willfully manipulative or ignorant, but there was some fallout from that because nothing was held in tension between faith and the mortality of this person. I think the fallout was emotionally pretty damaging to a lot of people because the narrative that we all took part in was like no no shred of doubt can enter this or there will be no healing outcome that might be a lot of people's experience of grief and mortality in the christian life i know that was mine and it distanced people i think from their own faith journey when loss occurred unsurprisingly when that healing didn't happen and then it started bringing up these big questions about the nature of God for a lot of people when they're in that really vulnerable space. There was no there was no safe, teachable moments where we talked about grief, where we talked about the inevitability of loss, where people were preparing themselves for loss. And so it ended up harming, I think, a lot of people. Yeah, I think, you know, I, t- I told Ethan, you know, one of the more significant moments for me and the, uh, these happened a lot but this is just the story that comes to kind of the surface for me that kind of references what you're talking about Patrick is there's a moment when my brother literally is like 2 weeks to live we we know that like this is truly the end and it's february and uh a f- a friend if if you will <laughs> Uh, shows up. I, I don't know that I would use that word, but a friend shows up. He's got a birthday present and he comes in and he's singing happy birthday to my brother. And he's just, you know, just speaking all of this. I've been, we've been praying. He brought his kids. My kids have been praying and we know that you're going to make it. And so here's your birthday present. My brother's birthday wasn't until June. And so he's like doing this big, like faith move. And uh, I, I just have this like, 
I, I still feel it right now, like just absolute anger at the fact that one, you're not letting my brother actually process the fact that he's going to die in two weeks. Uh, two, here's his wife and his kids that are in the room in this moment. And so for them to, uh, they are going to be assholes if they look at this guy and they're like, hey, no, <laughs> stop. You're not help-. like they look like, you know, unbelievers. So they have to like lean into this lie of like, thank you so much for this birthday. Like they're not allowed to deal with the reality of what's going on. They have to hold up the narrative. That's the thing that um, I, I started to get really uh, honestly angry about. I remember calling my wife afterwards like, you know, whatever, and, and just going to town. But I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Like you, you're not, you're not allowed, uh, to go there. And I, and I would even say the, the tension in, in, for me, in a lot of faith in, in church, particularly in Christianity communities is you can go there, but you have to go there to then get back to here, whatever that narrative was. Like you can't go there and stay there. And, and that was the journey for me that I just realized, I, I need to go there and I, I kind of need to stay there because I'm, I'm still there. I still need therapy. I still need somebody to, to kind of talk me through it. And it's not a bad thing. I'm not broken or less than as a human. I'm actually being invited into, a, a I would say, again, reality, a full holistic humanity compared to just forcing myself to be like, oh, you were sad for a day. Now get back to the narrative and pray and hope and believe kind of thing. That's a good segue, I think, to the, the grief journey. Um, after losing my mom, I think in my black and white robotic brain, I had this sequence of how everyone grieves before, during, and after. And what I learned is that there is no sequence and you can jump around and everyone's feeling something different at every stage. And someone may grieve and process and be done. And other people, it may be a multi-week or year or decade process. Um, and just kind of the lack of continuity with that was startling because typically when you go through something hard everyone kind of moves through these you know oftentimes people move through the being sad and then angry and but in a grief it seems like there's no playbook and it's weird as an adult because until I, you know I lost my grandma when I was younger but then when I lost my mom like no, no one taught me how to grieve no one told me what was okay there was no there was no even just like 10 quick steps to simple grieving, which doesn't exist, but it's, it's just never even spoken of, never talked about. And so I think that story you shared, Matt, of the birthday present, um, I know for you and for me, some of the most powerful moments of grief actually happened before uh, my mom passed away. So you know, I kind of want to transition to the, the grief journey before, during, and afterwards and kind of hear how, what, what did you experience before you lost your mom and your brother as you moved towards, you know, and then what happened, uh, you know, obviously at the day of and then afterwards. You know, for me, it comes down to that reality of, you know, trauma is an interruption in your life. You're going this way and something happens that causes you to not be able to experience or go down the path or experience the life that you anticipated or hoped for. And so at the core of, of what trauma is, is this disruption. And I, I bring that up because I think grief is is that same kind of thing like grief never goes the way that you want it to go it's at the core of what this thing is is trauma so it's it's there like you say Ethan there is no 10 step program or 10, 10 step path and and i think my experience and this goes back to some of the faith stuff that we talked about to actually put that expectation on your life or on someone else's life of like 
you know, there are the grief stages, the five stages that is, you know, kind of a generalization of, but you jump around in between those things. And one day you're here and the next day you're there. And to give yourself the freedom to actually experience that, um, you know, so for me, I remember when, um, you know, there's, there's kind of two big significant moments, uh, before my brother Ben passed away. One was when he came in to art house. I was working, he was still working at the time and he was very honest about the diagnosis and very honest about, and you know, uh, it's it's not looking good, I guess. And I called my wife, uh, who is a physician's assistant and actually understands this stuff on a level that is really, really helpful for me because she was like just and if <laughs> our my wife, Ethan's wife, very, very uh, reality driven individuals and anything that doesn't hold up to that reality, they uh, you're, you're going to hear about it. So I, I was like, kind of given some of the language that Ben had given still dealing in reality. But Kate goes, Oh yeah, that means he's got probably 24, like just matter of fact, like maybe 24 months if he's lucky. She was very kind and sympathetic in the midst of it. But, but through the course of that, as, as my wife is able to do was very clear and to the point of this is what you need to anticipate. And this is what's going to happen. And I broke down. I lost it in art house in that moment. And I, I, just uncontrollable. And it was like, he's not gone yet. Like there's still, I, I, there's still hope. There's still things that could happen. Why am I experiencing this grief now? What's going on? And then, uh, two years later, I remember I was at art house again, because apparently I'm, I'm there a lot. Uh, and I got the call from my brother when they, uh, when, uh, he, it was about two weeks to live and, and they were kind of, uh, you know, being honest about that. So he called me and he said, I just want you to know, had a conversation with the doctor and I'm not going back to the hospital because uh, he'd been in and out. And so, you know, it looks like we've got about two weeks. And again, I had to excuse myself from staff that were gathered doing something and just went into uh, this backspace and and just lost it uncontrollably uh, for a long time. And it felt so... Um, awkward and weird. Everybody understood and, and had understanding for it. But I bring that up because then when Ben actually passed and, uh, you know, got the phone call, I had been uh, at his house with his family all night and we knew that this was the last night and, you know, there were things happening with his breathing and, and body that, you know, every, you know, you look at it and you go, okay, we're, we're down to hours now. And going through that and trying to be supportive for the family and the kids are there and all of that stuff. And it's about 2 a.m. And, uh, you know, I'm, I go home, wake up the next morning at, at 7 to a phone call that, you know, it, it, it's happened. Ben has passed. And I was sad and I was heartbroken, but I didn't lose it like I lost it at Art House the two previous times. And I bring that up because there was this part of me that felt guilt of like, okay, now he's actually gone. And I felt like I should... I should like will some tears out of me in that moment. You know, I like what's what's wrong with me? Why why am I doing this? And that that is the grief journey. Like it's different for everybody. And I've had other moments. Ethan, when you and I were doing a pre, you know, interview conversation about this stuff, I had a moment where I teared up that just came out of nowhere. And and what I've learned, again, trauma is an invitation into reality. And so if if that is happening, I need to be in a space to to like embrace it and 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 rather than push it aside like Matt it's been 3 4 years come on stop it you should be fine like no i i i can embrace this and and i think that's probably one of the biggest uh, i mean they're all big learning things for me but the physical side of grief like we our bodies 
are responding physically to what's happening. And, you know, um, talking to a doctor that talks about pre-grief is actually one of the most powerful stages of grief that we don't talk about. Your body is anticipating loss, and it just, and that's what I experienced in those moments. It was pre-grief. Nothing had happened yet, actually, but I was anticipating what was to come, and, and it was really powerful. And, and so to, to go through that, and then, you know, same thing at the funeral, and, and obviously both of you have experienced it. You're at the funeral. And again, we have these like Hollywood pictures in our mind, maybe of what it looks like to be at a funeral and to be sad and to like, we feel like we have to put on a performance in that moment for a bunch of people in some ways of like, I need, I need to do the right things. I need to compared to like, no, everybody's going to go about this different. And so for me to go through the funeral and, and just embrace whatever was happening and, and be present with the people around me and grateful for everybody for sure, but also allow myself to deal in that reality, um, rather than feel guilty that I'm not a sobbing mess, you know, cause I, I, sh cause if Ben meant that much to me, why am I not crying more? You know, whatever it is. And same thing with my mom, you know, if my mom really meant that much to me, why am I not you know, just a, a hot mess? I, I don't always know, but I, I know that I'm, I, I need to be willing to process it. I know Pat and I have talked about this too. So you lose somebody, the grief journey continues indefinitely, uh, and it's different for everyone. How do you remember and celebrate these people in a way that's honoring to them? And I know Matt, you and I talked about, and you could have an annual family meal, but I really, I really loved and was excited to hear your perspective on how do you live with the presence of that person too in a in an ever you know ongoing moment um and responding to that on a day-to-day -day basis instead of memorializing or you said i think you said enshrining moments how do you remember but not enshrine yeah so i think the the potential or the tendency for at least uh myself and my family is you uh you know ethan use that word enshrine you you create these moments where um you know, so for, for my brother, for my mom, it was their birthday or it was, uh, my parents' wedding anniversary, um, things like that, where the opportunity is to create these traditions, these new traditions where we get together and we, we talk about and we celebrate, uh, their life. I think that is really, really great and really, really beautiful. But one of the things that I, I noticed can take place coming from a family that doesn't do well in sharing their real honest emotions with each other is we create these like, yeah, these sacred moments. Yes. But it's only in those sacred moments that we are allowed to talk about, uh, Ben only in these sacred moments that we're allowed to talk about my mom. Um, and so what the, what ends up happening is all 364 other days of the year, it becomes this awkward, uncomfortable thing to can, you know, for, for me, growing up in a family where there's, like all of our families, there's some weird family history that I'm still not quite sure, like, what what grandpa did, what grandma did, who, like, what... How is this a thing? Nobody talks about that. Why? Why do? Why do they not talk to each other? Don't go there. Like those kinds of things, which I don't want to be a gossip hound, but at the same time, like we, it's awkward to try and go there. And I remember sitting uh, when my my grandfather passed away a few years ago as well, and sitting in his like pre uh, funeral planning session where the families share stories and stuff. It's a beautiful moment, but like all of this stuff came out about grandpa, like that. Like, and I was like, where, where's all this coming from? And it just came from years and years and years of people not 
talking candidly and honestly. So to to take that and to take my experience with my my mom and brother in particular, and always wanting to create a space, particularly for my kids, where we can talk all the time about this stuff. We can talk so honestly and candidly about who mom was, Grandma Mary. I mean, we've got pictures of her. We've got pictures of my brother around our house, and we regularly bring it up. And it's and we've been, we've been in moments. I don't know if you've experienced this, Ethan, but we've been in moments where like we have company over and uh, someone's looking at the pictures and my four year old daughter, Margo, will be like, oh, yeah, that's Uncle Ben. He died. He's dead. He doesn't live anymore. I never got like she just goes there and she's happy and smiling the whole time. And these people, yep. they're like, whoa, OK, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to ask who that, you know, like what. And they feel. And so yeah, in that no, it's moment, okay. it's like, we can yeah, do this. Yeah. We do this all the time. We talk regularly about this all the time. I show pictures. My mom only knew Margot when she was this tiny little infant. And so, you know, she's just like, she loved to hold me, didn't she? And like, yes, she did. Like, we can go there. And sometimes I do break down. Sometimes I do get teary-eyed. Uh, but for me, that's part of this grief journey and and carrying on the legacy. I think part of the challenge of um, Christianity sometimes is this beautiful uh, picture and belief of heaven, uh, that they're in heaven, dancing, having a party. Yeah, way to go. But then we're left down here, and and we don't know what to do <laughs> with that information because we're still feeling lost. So we should feel happy, but we feel sad. So then we don't know what to do with it. So then we create these enshrined moments where it's like, okay, you, you have like one hour at a dinner <laughs> to go there. Other than that, we got to go back to the the narrative that it's all okay. And so... Um, that's been a, a work for me and my family and my kids in particular on this journey to, again, we're going to deal in the reality of these things. And if it makes the guests uncomfortable, uh, cause my daughter's talking about <laughs> all the dead people in her life, that's okay. Cause that's a part of our life. Well, I love, I, I love that Margot story. Annika does that all the time. We were having dinner and we we're talking about grandpas and she looks at Kaylee and goes, we have two grandpas, but we don't have Papa because mom, remember when your dad died? That was sad. And then she just keeps talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we did a, we do an annual birthday party for my mom and just to share stories. And Andrews last year refused to participate. And I'm like, what are you doing, buddy? He goes, I don't do birthdays for dead people. It's like, yeah, that, I mean, that's actually pretty rational. That make that makes sense. And so yeah. instead of yeah. making it awkward, like we just said, that's okay. And so I think, Little kids oftentimes give us permission to ha- have these conversations and, and normalize it. And, you know, my my youngest daughter has a haircut and looks like my mom now all the time. And she's always dancing. And so we can talk every day about how yes. Annika is dancing like Grandma Carrie. And that's a beautiful way to remember her and to talk about it. And as we do that more, it almost gives my family permission um, or kind of an invitation to do that with us. And what I found is some of them really don't want to, and that's okay. And some of them do, but you kind of have to, you know, lead in that way. And the people that lead the best, I think are the four and five year olds that kind of show us as adults, like this is an okay thing to talk about. Um, so I think, you know, Matt, you made a comment too previously where he, you said something like we have these birth and these death moments and they're behind closed doors with medical experts. And they're almost like removed from real life. And so tr- working to like normalize or reincorporate death into our ongoing story. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating thing culturally when you look at it. Uh, I mean, we've got thousands of years as as a species where uh, births and deaths were taking place in the home because that's where all of life happened. And then 
It's a good thing that we have hospitals for sure, but part of this cultural shift for us is we now have these spaces for both of those traumatic things, life-changing things, birth and death, to take place outside of our presence. Um, And so uh, they become these things that are are for the experts and not for us. And I'm I'm grateful for the medical community, the experts in the room to be there, but it, it, it puts this wall in between our ability to fully engage uh, these things, particularly death, I would say, um, because it's it's uncomfortable, it's awkward. I, we don't live in, among, and around it anymore. And I think it's it's even exaggerated when we look at you know the the nursing home culture. And as somebody is you know not that they're going there to die necessarily, but we don't know what to do with somebody that isn't functioning at a hundred percent you know, 40 year old levels. Cause that's when we're hundred percent, right guys? 40. Uh, so I, I that's, sure that's, uh, <laughs> we don't know what to do with that. So we create these separate spaces that they're, they're, yeah, they're still living, but it's, it's not the everyday interaction engagement kind of life. And, and so, you know, I think we, we have a potential to continue to amplify those things rather than again, fully engage in this reality of, of what it looks like to live in and among these things, particularly death and grief. As you're wrestling with this, were there voices that you were listening to that were more helpful than others? Was there, as you're like reshaping a worldview to contend with grief in your own life, what kind of people were you listening to? Or was this just self-discovery and figuring out how to live a more embodied life with your grief? Yeah, I think um, because I, again, define this this journey as an invitation into reality, uh, working to surround myself with people that were willing to point at and talk about that reality, um, particularly in the areas that I was not okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've already brought up my wife and her propensity to you know, whether it's our, her personality or our relationship, uh, obviously she, she becomes, you know, one of the strongest voices of, um, of this process. But then, you know, for me, it, it was this awakening to, there were a lot of really great people that I know care deeply about me and my family that were working to go on this journey with us for sure. But there were certain people, um, that whenever they spoke, it felt like, um, they were, they were on that journey into reality with me. So Ethan is one of those guys. He's he's one of the reasons that I am where I am right now and stepped away from from pastoral ministry because uh, I was talking in a certain way and Ethan just went, hey, I've noticed that you, he, he wasn't being judgmental, but he was just curious. He's like, I've noticed that you talk about yourself in the third person all the time. You're like one of the only people I know that does that. What do you think that's about? And no, I've been doing that for years and nobody had ever brought that up, but that was an invitation into, okay, there's something there. And, and what I would say is that was so powerful because what I had to realize, whether it was the grief journey or my own life as a, as a pastor, um, I had created this product of what my life should look like. And I was using this phrase, pastor Matt and, uh, you know, that I, I had like disembodied myself and created this projection of who I should be. And my whole life was working to try and get to be that projection of Pastor Matt. Um, and, and so it, it was 
people around me that are willing to not point the finger in judgment, but to put their arm around me in curiosity and say like, this is fascinating. Let's walk down this path together. So I, I where where my life used to have, you know, not an exaggeration, I would, because I'm of my personality, hundreds of people that are quote unquote speaking into my life. Uh, what this has done is really shrunk that down that there's probably four, maybe five people that when they say something, it's got a lot of weight and, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to, to engage in that for sure. You know, as death and trauma and grief continues, not just for us personally, but for our loved ones around us, maybe a friend, husband, wife, partner, um, family member, um, what, what are some, what are some ways that we can, um, support our community well throughout that grief process, um, as they, as they dive through that. And then I guess I'll, I'll start on that when my wife lost her dad my personality is to try to fix things and so like a phrase that i use is just sit in the mess and so when she was having a bad moment instead of swooping in or trying to fix things um just kind of sit with her and just be sad together and there's no expectations there's no timeline there's no antidote it's just like this is a sad bad moment and we'll get out of it but in this moment someone might just need a hug and to sit in that mess with them. Um, so curious for, for both of you, what encouragement you might have on that topic. I don't know that I have anything profound yet, but I do think the recognition of the journey of grief is a really helpful way to look at it. I think most of the people in your life are really present for like the couple of weeks around the loss of a loved one. Um, and then their life takes over and their priorities take over. And I think there's an assumption of, of moving on or moving past, um, when the reality is like, like you were saying, Matt, you might not feel anything in that two weeks. You might be planning a funeral. You might be being there, being present for everybody else who's, who's feeling it in that moment. And so my, my experience has been more like, really random recollections or emotional kind of surges in unexpected moments. So I think acknowledging that, assuming that that's similar for other people's journey of grief and just checking in over years, over months, you know, over decades. And, and most of the time for me, that's been reminiscing with siblings or feeling comfortable enough or giving space to others to feel comfortable enough to to bring up um, a memory or a question way down the road. I was just talking to my sister yesterday and she said, you know, I've, I've been feeling this urge again. Like I wake up in the morning and go and call our mom. Um, and that's been seven years and something that we haven't talked about in months certainly maybe maybe in the last year but there's something in her heart in her embodied experience of grief that in this season is like reaching for that relationship again and i think just being present to people and listening to their narration of what they think might be happening in their own heart that's creating that is is um has been so helpful and profound for me 
I would just echo uh, what you just said, Patrick, in a lot of ways. I think I grew up believing that I needed to be everything to everyone. Um, and this journey has showed me that one, I can't do that, but two, I can be something to someone. And I just need to define who the, that someone or those someones are uh, for my life uh, and that they would be that in return for me. And I think um, I, I'm just speaking for me personally. I have to um, stay away and stay off of social media and those kinds of things, because that is an invitation to be everything to everyone. And this realization, even from a news culture, this realization of I don't need to know um, what's happening on the other side of the world. Not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. But I, I re in all reality, can't do anything about that right now. But what? I, but do I know what's going on in my friend Ethan's mind and heart and life and family? Because I can do something about that. And so focusing my attention and how I'm choosing to to process things around these these are my quote unquote people, and I want to do my best to stay informed and engaged and connected with these people. And if that means that there are other people or things, you know, I'm sitting in the conversation like an election happened. Oh, what's I mean, I did vote for the record, but, you know, like those kinds of things of like, I don't feel this pressure that I used to feel of. I have to know all the things about all the things about everybody and stay engaged because I care. No, I care because I've identified certain people and I want to, like Ethan said, make space to just sit with them if I need to just sit with them. Yeah, I love that. Well, Matt, thanks for being on today. Thanks for sharing your story, um, for always being vulnerable, raw and kind and transparent person with me and, and the listeners. So. I didn't cry near enough. I should have, I should have, man, it, it was grief. I should have just been a blubbering mess. We'll have part two we'll, uh, where we can cry more together. If I cry, my wife will be thrilled. So <laughs> you can edit some tears onto my face, Pat. You got it. I love it. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. With that, we're done. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Cheers. See ya. If you or your friend have questions, drop us a line at areyouaskingforafriend at gmail. Send us your questions there and we'll work them into a future episode. Thanks so much for listening.